Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plot Lines. I'm your host, Connor, and today I have a wonderful guest with me, uh, the great historian Charles Coulomb, uh, expert in all things Blessed Charles, as well as uh, a great authority on Austrian history. And that's what we're going to be talking today. We're going to be talking about the interwar period, which means between World War One and World War II. We're going to be talking about Austria and the politics that went on. Uh, thanks for coming back to the show, Charles. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Connor. Well, it's a pleasure to always talk with you. Uh, you make my mornings uh, very, very happy. Excellent. And uh, well, so I have a little bit of a um, slideshow for us to help us to help guide our conversation today. Uh, for all of you watching, pl please make sure you like, share, comment, and subscribe. Uh, only, I believe only subscribers can uh, comment in the live chat. So if you have something to say uh, and you want us to react to it or something, please uh, subscribe so you can do that. Now, Charles, we have before us two images, one of a uh, blessed, a great hero of the church, and a traitor. Yeah, uh, not just any kind of a traitor. A man who sold his country three or four times, uh, the Erz collaborateur, the arch collaborator, the, the, the reeking sump of treason, the pile of garbage, the the worthless piece of uh, whatever you like. That, in sum, was Karl Renner. A hero today amongst many in Austria, as after all in many countries, pieces of garbage are held as heroes, and heroes are held as pieces of garbage. But that's the problem with living in a world that doesn't know nothing about nothing and is run by people that doesn't know nothing about nothing. Well, that's why we're here, to help people learn something and know something. Something about something instead of nothing about nothing. Well, let's see. Where does one begin? Karana was a, uh, the head of the Socialist Party. And as we all know, in 1918, the war was winding down. Our own beloved president, Woodrow Wilson, had made uh, Blessed Carl's deposition from power uh, a requirement for peace. And since peace was necessary, if the blockade was to end and the starvation was to end, well, let's just say off his throne, Carl went. Um, Rena uh, became the first head of the Austrian uh, Republic and went out of his way to make the lives of Carl and Zita and their children as miserable as possible. Fortunately for them, and not so fortunately for the moron in the glasses you see there, uh, King George V sent a man named Colonel Strutt to assist the emperor and the empress in their last days in Austria and in their withdrawal. And Strutt was able to uh, humiliate Renner on several occasions and make him shut his little mouth. And eventually was able to bring the emperor and empress out of the country uh, with complete dignity. But while they were settled in Switzerland, uh, they were not idle. Although in many ways, and this is kind of an ironic thing, their older children remembered their first years in exile as the happiest time of their lives because they got to see their parents all the time. And they got to really know them and enjoy them, which during the war uh, had often been a problem because their parents were running around doing heads of state things. At any rate, um, Rena uh, continued to uh, mismanage Austria for a few years. And then he was defeated at the polls and the Christian Social Party came in. And the Christian Social Party at the time was led by a priest named Monsignor Ignaz Zeipel. Can, uh, Charles, can I back you up a little bit? Uh, yes. Can can we just sort of get uh, sort of an understanding of like uh, also like what could have could Blessed Charles's uh, leadership in the government before he 
was uh, was forced into exile, could it have been? Could he have been stayed as sovereign? Well, actually, he could have. A number of uh, a number of interesting things occurred. I, I mean, the the opposition of the United States and the refusal to make peace with him. Uh, that really was kind of a hard a hard deal, but. Uh, things would have been very different, uh, just to give one example, if uh, Field Marshal Borevich, who uh, was the only Austrian commander who was able to pull his soldiers out of the collapse of the Italian front, he had made his way to Corinthia with his men, and he uh, uh, telegraphed, wired uh, the emperor at Vienna to let him know that they had... Um, he had an army they could bring to Vienna to maintain order. Well, obviously, had that happened, uh, Rena and his little friends would have been in a very different position. Doubtless, Rena would have come out as an enormous monarchist. Uh, mm -hmm. That being, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it needed to be. He was a traitor's traitor, so it, it didn't matter. But uh, speaking of traitors, the uh, uh, commandant of the Vienna garrison had already gone over to Renner. And so when Borevich sent his telegram, not only was it refused, was his offer of bringing the army refused, it was refused in the name of the emperor, who never saw it and was never told about it. Was uh, Borevich also a uh, Serb? Uh, Croatian. Oh, Croatian, okay. He was the only Croatian field marshal in the Austrian army, uh, but a very valiant man, a very great soldier. And, you know, he said, well, the emperor doesn't want us to do anything. He knows best, and he dissolved his troops, uh, etc. So uh, worthless as Renner was, the commander of the um, Vienna garrison was worse. Because he simply, uh, he was, it's one thing when a politician breaks their oaths. Because, you know, I mean, come on, they're politicians. <laughs> what do you expect? But when a soldier breaks his oath, it's uh, doubly or triply bad, in my humble opinion. Anyway, uh, so the uh, then, of course, Karl and Zita would attempt to retake the Hungarian throne with tacit French backing in 1921. They failed in both attempts, however, uh, were packed off to Madeira, the island of Madeira, and on April 1st, 1922, Carl died of uh, pneumonia. And so uh, Zita and the children went to Spain, and they would stay there until 1928. Then they went to Belgium, and they were there until World War II. But they don't really enter too much into the picture, except that uh, they became a rallying ground for defenders of Austrian independence which, of course, didn't include Karl Renner and his gang of uh, his, his 40 thieves. Uh, so Renner, as I say, led the Socialist Party. Uh, there were two other parties, the Christian Social Party, which, uh, like the Socialists, predated the, uh, the First War. And they were very much in favor of Catholic social teaching and all that and applying it to uh, concrete problems. The third were the uh, Pan-German Party, who were the forebears of today's Freedom Party in Austria, the way the Christian Social Party was the today's Austrian People's Party. These three groups, uh, between them, were the vast majority of uh, uh, Austrian voters until the early 30s. After a couple of years, Renner lost the election, Monsignor Zeipel wins, uh, and he stabilizes the Austrian economy, which was quite a feat. Nevertheless, uh, there were difficulties, there were problems, and all three parties, and then the nascent Nazi party, uh, had paramilitary supporters, shall we say. The gentleman you see there is the Prince von Starnberg, who was the founder of the Heimwehr, which were aligned with the uh, Christian Socials. Is there any relation between Starnberg and Stoppenberg? Just no, 
know. No. It sounds yeah. like it, but they're, they're not. Except they were both uh, Germanic nobility. Oh, so so uh, didn't Renner uh, abolish nobility? Uh, yes. Uh, Renner put in two laws reflecting what a petty little piece of garbage he was, as petty little pieces of garbage go. Uh, the first was the Habsburg Law, which, uh, A, forbade the uh, uh, any Habsburg to render Austria without renouncing the throne. B, made it illegal for any uh, Habsburg to be elected president of Austria. And C, stole their private property. Uh, that was the Habsburg Law. The... Uh, uh, second law of that sort he put in was the anti-nobility law, which abolished the nobility and made it a crime to use either a title or the the word "fon" in your name. So and what what is that again in your name? Fon, V-O-N. Oh, von. so in oh. other words, yeah, that's a crime in this country, and that's you can thank the, uh, the little slime uh, the little slime bucket they called Karl Renner. And isn't Vaughn just of, right? That's what it means. Well, yes, but that's implying that you're a nobleman and that you were the lord of that place. And that's just terrible. Especially <laughs> if you're a little moron like him. You know, Because he reason, wasn't a noble. No, not only was he not a nobleman, but uh, his father had been a vintner. And he had a large family, I think 11 kids. And then what happened was there was a, uh, uh, an outbreak of a uh, vine disease. His father went broke, and the uh, children were parceled out to various different people. Karl Renner's education was paid for by a minor nobleman. Hmm. Now, what, what happens in that sort of a uh, setup is one of two things. If you're a decent individual, you have an emotion called gratitude. If you're not a decent individual, you have uh, an, a, an emotion called resentment. Renner not being a decent individual, resentment was what uh, oozed forth from his uh, dark soul. Anyway. Well, socialists don't, that's that's not really a trend amongst them to have gratitude. Oh, no, no. And why should it be? They, they, ju they think everything should be theirs by default. Well, yeah. So there's no, so there wouldn't be such a thing as necessary gratitude. Well, no, you, you can't be grateful because everything you've got should be mine anyway. <laughs> everything you've got should be mine. <laughs> the, the fact that you've got anything I don't have shows you're evil and you need to be punished. It's mm -hmm. the politics of envy. Always has been, always will be. And the worthless call Renner epitomized them. But I, I'm losing the thread of thought. So Renner is now in the opposition. Well, Zipel eventually... Uh, in, in 1930, 1930, I guess, he dies. And the Great Depression hits Austria like the rest of the world. Seipel's a priest, too. He, he sure is. Which is, so, what do you think of just priests as politicians in this circumstance? Well, between the wars, there was a lot of that. In uh, Slovenia, Slovakia, Czechia, uh, Belgium. The Netherlands, Latin America, there were a lot of uh, Zeppelin, of course, and in Germany as well, and Italy, uh, Monsieur Struzzo. There were a lot of priest politicians. Um, and that was not so bad at a time when priests could be relied upon if they went into politics to try to pursue the Catholic line. But the reason why it's now forbidden is that in the 70s, we had in the House of Representatives a Father Robert Drynan SJ. And Father Drynan had the most pro-abortion record of any congressman. I mean, there wasn't an infanticide that Father Drynan wasn't in love with. <laughs> you know, okay. if it was baby murder, he voted for it. It was great. Didn't matter what it was. He was all for it. So for some reason, Pope John Paul II didn't like that. And he ordered that uh, Drynan leave Congress, you know, and go into some other line of work, butchery or something that was more, you know, in keeping with his talents. And uh, he put it into canon law that priests would not be allowed to hold public office. So yeah. 
to answer your question, it's one thing if they're Monsignor Zeipel, it's another if they're Robert Dryden SJ. That, yeah, that's uh, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Given given the time uh, now, it doesn't seem like a very good idea. Previously, no. it may have had some quality, though. It's I mean, it's amazing to go from like kings and emperors to priests in like in politics. In, did, well, they, did they participate in um, like parliaments? Oh, yeah. Okay. They, they, depending on the country, part of the reason though was that they were often uh, the best educated people in a given community and the most eloquent. So, very often areas that uh, were heavily peasant would have priest politicians because the peasants themselves really were not capable of representing themselves. But their parish priest could. Also, so if he if he went to the parliament and uh, placed his their concerns in front of them, you know he might get he might have some success. Also, Seipel resigned in twenty or nineteen twenty nine. He did as chancellor, and I believe wasn't he? Didn't they attempt to assassinate him as well? They sure did, but his health was failing. So he resigned. There was a brief interlude again under the socialists. But then uh, the Christian socialists came back to power with the former minister of the interior, an interesting man named Engelbert Dolfus. Now, Engelbert Dolfus uh, was a farmer. And he was a veteran of the First World War. He'd been a corporal, a uh, short guy, and a very... Um, resolute individual, very devout Catholic. Well, in 1932, um, he, I guess he came to, uh, he became uh, chancellor and he was wrestling with the Great Depression. Now it so happened that Pope Pius XI came out with an encyclical called Quadragesimo Anno, in which he uh, gave some solid recommendations for the building of a Catholic state. Well, um, in 1933, a couple of things happened. The Nazis, who were already in Austria, came to power in Germany. And they began pressuring Austria. Um, the um, uh, Depression had destabilized Austria's economy and Austria's social culture. And the the um, paramilitaries, the Schutzbund, the Heimwehr, and the Nazis started fighting each other in the streets. So uh, Dolfus gave the order that they were all to be disarmed. Uh, the socialists said, hell no, we won't go, and fought back. So the result was a brief but unpleasant civil war. When it was over, something like 10 or 11 socialists had died. And from that time on, they called Dolfus the worker murderer. Because, you know, of all those 11 people who had been fighting to hold on to their weapons. You know, so civ uh, I, that's not the most bloody civil war, to be honest. It's bloodier than ours. Ours only had thousands upon thousands. And they had. There were, but there were no socialists involved. Uh, so you know, a socialist life is uh, it's worth socialist, much more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, it's worth much more. So uh, then Karl Renner began to uh, play nice with the Nazis. He made the uh, the great comment: "You are national socialists. We are international socialists. We are brothers." which I'm sure was true. I have no doubt he was being sincere to the degree that he was capable. Well, part of the problem in the Austrian parliament was that you had, you had three speakers of the house, uh, one for each party. And on this occasion, uh, when they were voting on a general strike bill, uh, which would have paralyzed the country, the uh, 
the uh, man from uh, the OVP and the uh, pan-German man both resigned so they could vote because you couldn't vote if you were a speaker. Well, Hannah decided he was going to do the same thing. So he resigns. But now Parliament doesn't have a speaker, and so it can't function. <laughs> so Dolfos dissolves it. But instead of calling for new elections, which he was deathly afraid would result in a Nazi socialist uh, coalition that would take over the country and deliver it over to Germany, which Renner had advocated as early as 1918, incidentally, uh, he decided to do something different, which was not to call Parliament back into session and to establish a new constitution, a sort of beyond liberal democracy kind of thing, based on Quadragesimo Anno. And that was the origin of what's called the Standesstaat, the estates state, because it was set up on corporatist lines. Now, um, the moronic and foolish uh, academics of a later era wanting to discredit uh, Dolfos and his uh, cohorts dubbed this regime Austro-fascism, <laughs> a clerico-fascism. Now, the beautiful thing about both of those words is that they uh, poison the well before you get to examine any of the evidence. You see, I mean, it would be like my calling Austrian socialism Renner Nazism, which, as we'll see, is actually much more accurate. Renner yeah. Nazism, given his total and complete selling out to the Nazis as a Nazi sympathizer. Now, uh, I, I'm just going to uh, give some people an idea on what sort of the new constitution looked like regarding like government, and you can help us uh, work through it. The whole, so the main point is that it's a, a Christian constitution that's uh, very um, for, uh, put forth quite uh you know, right away, it is a, there is a state council, uh, which is a federal diet and a federal diet. And then a sorry, and then a federal diet made up of a smaller group of the following groups, sorry, a state council, which is chosen by the president, uh, and that, which is, uh, counselors or intellectuals, uh, or sorry, a council of intellectuals, including religious leaders, teachers, um, from a variety of different places. There's a federal economic council, which is professionals and economic organization representatives, a provincial council, which has a governor and a finance member of each region on it. And then those member, member, a uh, number of those members become part of the federal diet. And then there is also a federal court of justice and the interesting thing is the freedom, like the freedoms guaranteed, are, I don't see how they could be fascist, or at least what uh, people think of fascism. Uh, so, well, well, yeah, but that's only if you examine the thing in itself. You're not supposed to do that. So this what you is do the, is you look at the label and go with that. This is a uh, portion from Menzers, I think. I think that's what it, uh, the author is. Uh, evidently, the Constitution of 1934 protects all those liberties which are essential to every free state, the equality of all citizens in the eyes of the law, without distinction of birth, condition, or class. Public office is, is open to all patriotic citizens, the freedom of the individual uh, domiciliar rights. What does that mean? Uh, to, to live where they want. Okay. The secrecy of correspondence and telephonic intercourse, which we don't have, basically. Ah. The right of citizens to form associations within the limits set by the law, the right to address claims or complaints to the proper quarter, the right of every citizen within limits set by law to give outward expression to his opinion by word or writing, print or picture, in other words, the freedom of the press, finally, the freedom of science and learning so far as the duties of a public office are not infringed. Uh, moreover, the Constitution guards freedom of conscience and liberty of private and public religious practices so far as those are not in conflict with public order or with good morals. Finally, it provides for independence of judges in the exercise of their office. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it was. And the other thing that uh, Dolphus came to recognize was that for this new system to really endure, it would need uh, the Habsburgs at the head of it. And so he began to introduce the idea of uh, restoration. Unfortunately, before anything could be done about that, the Nazis attempted a coup d'etat in 1934, and in the course of it, Dolphus was murdered. Now, several things happened all at once. Italy at that time was allied to Austria, as it was to Britain and France. So the Italians rushed troops to the Brenner Pass to reinforce Austria in case of a German invasion. The Germans backed down, which was a good thing for all concerned. Um, Dolfus died. He was murdered, as I say, in his office, replaced by uh, Chancellor von Schusnig. And von Schusnig would reign for the next three years. Um, in 1935, the Austrian government returned to the Habsburgs the uh, land that had been stolen from them by uh, Karl Renner and his group. And then, uh, over the course of the next few years, as a sign of commitment to Austrian independence and a show of resistance to the Nazis, town after town in Austria declared the Archduke Otto the heir to the throne, the Emperor Karl's son, to be heir to the throne and to be a uh, honorary citizen of a given town. There were several hundred of these towns in Austria that did this. So was he allowed back in the country or no? Not, not at that point, not at that but, point. But they're they're declaring him an honorary citizen, but he's not allowed back in the country. It's uh, the, When laws are not uh, corresponding with sort of people's, with the, you know, with uh, these types of, uh, patriotism is so odd. Well, it, it was certainly a strange deal, but nevertheless, uh, that's where things lay. And um, then, uh, I want to back up just a little bit. And so the fact that Dolphus, Dolphus has an alliance with Mussolini and Mussolini is still part of the Entente at this point with France uh -huh. and Britain. What, wouldn't it have been interesting if, like, Mussolini was close to war with Hitler in, uh, was it 34? No. Uh, do you think there was an actual chance of that, or is that, was that just, was that impossible? Was was Hitler not wanting war, Mussolini wasn't war, wanting war? I mean, he had just taken out one of, sort of, arguably Mussolini's maybe closest ally? Yeah. And Italy, uh, Italy rushed troops, as I say, and Germany backed down for the prospect of a war with Italy. Now, that having been said, two years later, something happened, or a year later, something happened that would change everything. And that something was that Mussolini decided to conquer Ethiopia. Now, he consulted the foreign ministers of Britain and France. They said, go ahead, we don't care, do what you want. And he did. Well, unfortunately, the foreign ministers had not really consulted with their governments. And so when Mussolini began the invasion of Ethiopia, they were outraged that he was doing this. And that led to Italy breaking with Britain and France. Well, from that moment on, Austria was doomed. Yeah. She could only retain her independence if she were allied to a greater power. And now she was cut adrift. It took two years, and there was unrelenting pressure on the Austrians. Hitler was afraid that they would bring uh, the Archduke back just to fight him. And so the uh, story of the uh, invasion of... Uh, uh, the story of the, the uh, invasion of Ethiopia and all that really... Well, as I say, it, it, it doomed Austria. Uh yeah because they had nothing with which to resist. And it, 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 it was a tragedy. It was an utter tragedy. So in 1938, 
uh, Renner, uh, well, first Kurt von Schussnick buckles under uh, the pressure that Hitler put on him. And he decides against having a referendum on Austrian independence. Uh, instead, they have a, uh, initially the, the German army enters the country without invading, it just occupies. And then they have a referendum to approve what's been done. And Karl Renner uh, calls on the, on the uh, socialists to support the seizure of, of power by the Nazis. So that's what happens. And the heart of the resistance, not too surprisingly, are the monarchists, the supporters of the Habsburgs, and the Catholics. The socialists were ordered by Karl Renner to collaborate, and they did. They voted for uh, the Nazi takeover, and Renner offered himself to the Nazi authorities, but they said, no, no, that's all right. You just work, you work in your garden, which he did for the rest of the rest of the war. And then, at the end of the war, well, a couple of funny things happened. Uh, the Archduke Otto and his family had gone to North America, and he advised Roosevelt during the war. Amongst other things, he was able to convince Roosevelt that Austria was a victim nation herself and should not be left absorbed into Germany. So that was undone. That's why Austria is independent today. Meanwhile, he sent his younger brothers to fight with the anti-Nazi resistance in the Tyrol, which they did. 1945 comes along. France occupies Tyrol. And the, the brothers Habsburg reunite in Innsbruck. Meanwhile, Renner writes a letter to Stalin, uh, just sicking his boots and then offering himself uh, for whatever dog-like devotion job he can get. Well, the Russians pick him up and say, well, Stalin's been looking for you. He wants to make you chancellor. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. But much to everyone's surprise, because he, um, we, because everything was done under the shadow of, of Soviet control, uh, the fellow was... Uh, defeated in the first free election at the end of 1945. So he's out of the uh, job as provisional chancellor uh, that he had had, and he doesn't get the, uh, he, he momentarily retires. I say momentarily because then Stalin turned around and told the Western allies that he was insisting that Renner be made president of Austria. And that's what they did. And so for five years until he died in 1950 and went down to politician uh, heaven where the motto <laughs> is uh, snap, crackle, pop. Uh, until then, he sat on Stalin's lap and did what he was told. And so why did the allies or why did, uh, the, why did they let... Um basically Stalin appointed the president? Well, they were, they wanted to please Stalin. Um, they were grateful just to have him on their side at that point. So they really didn't care. Don't forget, uh, they, they gave away Eastern Europe to the Soviets at Yalta. Yeah. Austria was small, small potatoes. That, that was still FDR, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. And, well, uh, Truman took over, but it was the same policy. Sure. Truman would not really radically change his views until 46, 47. Yeah. Now, interesting enough, uh, Shushnig uh, ended, or he, well, he came back to, I think, Austria, but he, he during the war, he was in concentration camp, and afterwards he went to America. Right and yeah. became a professor. Yeah. Uh, did he have any influence outside of that? No. Okay. No. Did he just want out of uh, political eye? I guess. 
Well, I mean, the fact that he had lost uh, to Hitler didn't really uh, endear him to the uh, the Austrian public, mm-hmm. and you know he was he was tired of the whole thing. Um, but one of the one of the things that has to be remembered is that Austria is the only country in Europe whose chancellor died fighting the Nazis, which is why they're called Dolfos the Helden Chancellor, the hero chancellor. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, of course, Karl Rahner, as I say, was the arts collaborateur, the arch collaborator. <laughs> yes, indeed. The contrast there is, you know, very important. Now, one of the in- one, one interesting thing about sort of the patriot patriot fl- front no. uh, that I found very interesting, and not to mention, it's supposed to be a non. It's almost a non-political political party. You know, it's supposed to be because all political parties basically were were um, were abolished when once Parliament was uh, done away with, and the p- principles of it were you had to be for the independence of Austria, you had to be patriotic, you had to you had to work towards unity, and you had to be anti. Uh, Kulturkampf, is that the right pronunciation? Kulturkampf. Kulturkampf. Which is, you know, the relationship between uh, Catholicism and the and the government. Yeah. Now, what uh, what effect did the church have uh, in the in the, in the Dolphus government? Well, for Adolphus's time, they, they went along more or less with him. Um, but sadly, the, the role of the Austrian government, uh, sorry, of the Austrian church in uh, the past several decades, starting with Karl, has not really been great. Uh, Cardinal Piffel, in 1918, basically betrayed him. And then in 1919, wrote an encyclical declaring that it was a religious duty to support the Republic. Initzer was friendly to Dolphus, but in the end, this went along Cardinal with Cardinal that's he. Yeah. Uh, he, in the end, he went along with the Anschluss. Uh, in 1968, Cardinal Koenig of Vienna, uh, when Humane Vitae came on, uh, he uh, got the Austrian bishops to declare that uh, just because someone disagreed with Humana Vitae and accepted birth control didn't mean he had to go to confession before going to communion. Meaning there's nothing wrong with it, it's not a sin. And then the following year, when the leaders of the OVP, the Old Credit Social Party, were getting the, the uh, getting themselves together to fight the abortion issue, they turned to Cardinal Koenig and said, of course, we'll need your support in fighting this. And he said, oh no, I don't want another culture war. Oh, gee, willikers. And so since those days, no Christian democratic politician would do anything without the hierarchy's approval. Uh, abortion came to Austria with barely a, a, a whimper. Um, it's an old tradition, you know, betraying the good. Interesting. I'm not saying there's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. You know, I don't judge. <laughs> And Pius the is it Pius the eleventh I think gave uh, Cardinal Inizer, uh a talking to after he uh, basically supported the Anschluss and forced him to basically go back on it. Yeah. So but. it it's just insane because it seems like they had the, sort of the best possible situation. Uh, in a Dolphus or a Schuznig government? Well, yes, but the again, the problem is without the support of Mussolini, Austria was doomed. Yeah. Britain and France weren't going to go to war for Austria. So you might, if you like, place the blame on uh, Ethiopia. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, No, it was a terrible thing. Terrible. I mean, Mussolini really chose 
kind of where he was where he was going by the abandoning of Austria. Yes. And by going after Ethiopia. And he which... and he put, and he put himself in bed with Hitler by default. Yeah. Whereas had he stayed allied to the allies, uh, who knows what would have happened. And who knows if there'd be a, a king in Italy. Yeah. Still. There, there's a lot of possibilities. And what Dolphus and Schuznig, you talked about sort of uh, the people leading up to the Angelus uh, opening the way for Otto possibly. And didn't, didn't Hitler call the Angelus Operation Otto? Yeah, yeah, he sure did. He was so afraid that Schuschnigg would bring him back and that the Austrians would fight as a result. Wasn't that was his great fear. Schuschnigg didn't seem to be a a strong leader by any no. stretch of the imagination. So no, it seems he, that his only answer could have been bringing back or bringing a strong leader back. Yeah, and he wasn't up to it. So... What can I tell you? So he, he made his bed and he had to lie in it. He made his bed and all of Austria had to lie in it. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, he had to lie in the concentration camp for the time being. Yeah, he did. How, did, out, yeah. how did these people, like, survive in these concentration camps? Uh, like, I mean, like, I think didn't the, the king of Bavaria or the Duke of Bavaria... Both of them, weren't they at uh, different uh, concentration camps, too? Yes, and Princess Mafalda of uh, Savoy went to the concentration camp. Quite a few uh, royals found their way there, and a number of them didn't make it. Or if they did make it, when the whole thing was over, they were uh, so weakened that it was so weakened that uh, they they couldn't survive. The is it was it the uh, the sons of the current or the sorry the father of the current uh, like a parent of the uh, kingdom of Bavaria. He was in a concentration camp, right? Or uh, I, I, he wasn't. His wife was. His wife was. Oh. She was a Savoy, uh, as I recall. I could be wrong, but she was, I believe she was a Savoy. She didn't survive the experience. Uh, and as soon as uh, King Victor Emmanuel broke with Italy, uh, then as soon as he broke with Italy, uh, uh, the Italian royals were open market for the uh, Nazis. Yeah. How would you characterize Dolphus's government? Because the, the, the academics are ca characterized it as Austro-fascism. How would you characterize it? Uh, uh, Catholic corporatism. Okay. How, how is corporatism different from fascism? Well, it's different in a number of ways. Firstly, uh, corporatism, as you, know, you mentioned earlier, the representation according to corporations, i.e. different um, functional or professional groups in society. Well, this kind of corporatism, plain capitalism does not need to justify itself under anything but economic, uh, like communism, under anything but economic requirements. You know, it makes people rich or it doesn't. It brings a good standard of living, or it doesn't. But corporatism inevitably has to appeal to something higher in order to function. The thing about uh, Italian fascism was that it used what is called state corporatism. That is, the state was the highest end goal. Uh, but in Catholic corporatism, it's the members of the corporations themselves and their, their country as a whole. And rather than being imposed from the top down, it comes to the bottom up. Is corporatism a lot very similar to the state's system? Yes. Uh, that's why they call it the Stande because the Stände were 
what that was the word they used for corporations in, in Austrian German. It's also similar to guild socialism and to distributism, if you're familiar with those terms. Yeah. So why do they call it guild socialism? Because to be honest, that's the the unfortunate name, if I would say so myself. It, it, it is unfortunate because the uh, uh, when we hear socialists, that's all we care about. Anyway, uh, what it basically it's like it's as with it uses the name guild instead of corporation, but it's the same thing. The guilds are, are the uh, means of representation, uh, and they represent both workers and uh, capital and sales. Everybody, in other words, if you had the shoe guild or the shoe corporation, it would encompass the independent shoemakers who set the fashions, the uh, workers in shoe factories, the owners in shoe factories, and the uh, shoe retail element. And all of them would be, uh, because they're all integral to the well-being of the shoe industry, they'd all be members of the shoe guild or the, the shoe corporation. And in turn, they would elect delegates to the... Uh, well, depending on how it was organized, very, very possibly to the state or provincial and the national legislature. Gotcha. And there, so there are people that say that um, that even if Hitler hadn't marched troops in during the uh, for the was it the referendum, I guess, or whatever you call it, uh, yeah. Anschluss, that that uh austria would have voted to join germany without them. Um, well again why did uh why did dolphus suspend the constitution and not call for elections he was afraid of a socialist nazi coalition to right. take over the country mm -hmm. guess what it that's what you got it <laughs> that's what happened full stop so, you know, similarly, the Austria, the resistance to the Nazis, uh, with the exception of some few communists who did resist the Nazis without a doubt, uh, they were mostly monarchist and Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, Father Heinrich Meyer, for instance, uh, and the 08 organization. They, uh, sorry, 05, not, oh wait, my mind's gone, 05. These were all uh, Catholics and monarchists, and they were the only real opposition that, not, that Hitler had. Now, um, it was on that basis that Otto was able to argue successfully for Austria's independence. What I find very funny are the socialist academics of today in Austria who talk about the myth of Austria as the victim country. Well, it's a myth as far as their ideological predecessors go. Yeah, you're right. You people were, in fact, not victims who were collaborators. But the people they continue to despise, the Habsburgs, the younger of whom I mentioned, uh, were in the resistance. The, the church and the, uh, and the uh, monarchists, they were victims. I mean, basically, it's like this. The only way that Austria can escape the opprobrium of having been a collaborator state, a collaborator people, is by embracing the tradition that the current regime, the current establishment, are uh, sworn to attack continually. Or to put this another way, let's just make this real simple. Dolphus, murdered by the Nazis. Renner collaborated with them, okay? See, to be murdered by somebody is different than to help bring them to power and collaborate with them. I know this is very, very, very complex idea, very difficult notion for many academics to understand, many politicians, many people in the media. They, it's, it's very difficult for them. So once more, Dolphus, boom, dead. Renner. <laughs> chancellor and then dying as president of the country 
That's the difference. Now, another amusing thing is that the three points of the Habsburg law, although the anti-nobility law of Renner is still very much with us, two of the three points of the Habsburg law have been knocked down. Uh, Habsburgs can re-enter the country, and they can run for president. But remember I said, or did I mention it, in 1935, they had their property returned. I think so. In 1938, the Nazis stole it again. And, they, and the government have held on to it ever since. It's like the Klimt painting, Nazi loot. You know? Yeah. And what is Nazi loot? Nazi loot is stuff the Nazis stole in a given country, not necessarily just Austria. And the powers that be have decided to withhold it for the rightful owners. Now, they sued to get it back. The Constitutional Court said, oh, no. Oh, no, if we give it back, it'll jeopardize the constitutional order. And it'll bring in, it'll bring into question the entire legitimacy of our arrangements. Well, all I can say is this. If the legitimacy of anything is threatened by returning Nazi loot to its proper owners, maybe that legitimacy requires threatening. Maybe it's not really legitimate. Yeah, maybe it's not a good thing. Maybe not. If justice if justice is a bad thing for you, then maybe justice isn't the problem. Maybe it's not justice that's the problem. Maybe it's, dare I say it, no, I dare not. I'm yeah. too nice a person. Now, are you, talk, are you talking about how the nobility is still sort of... Um, abolished and you can't and it's even illegal to use uh terms like that um or use you know use the um your basically title and no. use uh the von in your name which is still very interesting uh to me it does anybody like uh starenberg has any other members of the nobility have they been um active in Austrian politics or the Austrian oh. uh, uh, Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, indeed they have. In fact, the, the last chancellor uh, who was really awful was a nobleman. He was a Graf on, I forget his name now, before the current one, Nehammer. Uh, he was the one who um, during the height of the COVID lockdown, you know how Governor Gavin Newsom had a big maskless party at the uh, French Laundry during the height of the lockdown, mm -hmm. and all his buddies were there shaking their groove things. Well, uh, unlike Gavin Newsom, who at least pretended he cared and apologized, this guy, had he had a party with his pals all right in a nightclub in Vienna, but he put it on television. <laughs> okay. Bold and move. And for some reason, uh, the reaction was suboptimal, and he had to get a new job. Shocking. What was his nobility? He was a count. Uh, what was his name? I don't remember. It shows you I'm, I'm as uh, millennial as anyone else. I, I can't remember anything. Well, you, senility. Are, you are on the internet, so that, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Nehammer is the current uh, incumbent. Uh, but he uh, succeeded. Uh, yeah, yeah, Schallenberg. Yeah, the uh, the Graf von Schallenberg. Schallenberg, not St Schallenberg. No, no, no. Alexander Graf von Schallenberg. I'm never going to be good at remembering or pronouncing. Uh, German names. Well, don't worry about it. They're not very good at pronouncing ours. Oh, good. Wait, but you, you're French. What's up? You're French. Yes, indeed. There was a question, but uh, I said I can pronounce Coulomb uh, quite easily. <laughs> now, uh, somebody in the comments is saying, uh, I thought uh, Habsburg was an MEP. Yes. Actually, two of them were. Uh, Otto von Habsburg was a, uh, was an MEP for Germany, 
and then his son Carl for a, a period was an MVP uh, for uh, Austria, but he broke with the OVP over uh, abortion, in fact, uh, since they didn't oppose it sufficiently. And then he ran on an independent slate and was roundly defeated. And that was the end of his time as an MVP. Okay. Well, a good way to go out, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're going to go. He, uh, incidentally, I spoke to him a few days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, a year and a half ago. And uh, I was absolutely sure that Russia would not invade. And he was absolutely sure they would. He was right. I was wrong. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> oh, uh, you get to gloat. Well, what are you going to do? Sometimes you've got to admit that people know more than you do. Now, hmm? there's, a, there's a question in the uh, comments. Ethereal Catholic is asking if you could talk about uh, Bella Coon's reign of terror. About whom? Bella Coon. Oh, Bella Coon. Sure, sure. You betcha. Uh, well, remember in 1918, I mentioned that Carl had been pushed off the throne in Austria. Oh, sorry. Was... Uh, just remember, if you guys have questions, send them in so we can. So I'll ask Charles. Anyways, sorry. Yeah, I want to thank uh, John, not real name, for uh, showing solidarity with me. He says, don't worry, Charles. I was wrong, too. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 tough. It's tough. But, you know, we we just pull ourselves together and carry on. Um, so what happened uh, there was that um, in uh, Hungary, a uh, uh, Hungary declared independence from the Habsburgs and they came to power. The Red Count, Count Karoli who was a socialist and a very a revolutionary and very namby-pamby. And pretty soon the real communists took over from him. And their leader was a man named Bela Kuhn. And for a good year or more, they ran Hungary into the ground. It was a real reign of terror. Well, the, um, they murdered, amongst other people, uh, Istvan Tisa, who was the former prime minister of Hungary who had really been a thorn in the side of, uh, uh, of, um, of Carl during World War, during World War One, But, you know, he, he got what he asked for. The Habsburgs are out of power in Hungary, so I guess that was okay. At any rate, um, Bela Kuhn's reign of terror was ended by a combination of Hungarian uh, resistance, the, the White Guard, and the Romanians. And together, they expelled Bela Kuhn and uh, his, his foes, uh, his friends, rather. Um, his chief of police was a man named Samueli, S-Z-A-M-U-E-L-Y, which was really Samuel. Kuhn, incidentally, I don't want to get everybody excited, but uh, Bela Kuhn and a few of his top people were Jewish. Kuhn was Cohen. And Samuel was Samuel. Now you need to know that for the rest of the story to make sense. So the White Guards are hotly pursuing Samueli to the Hungarian border, or the Austrian border. Samueli had murdered a lot of people in cold blood, and they wanted to get their hands on him in the worst way. So they start shooting at him. Well, a bullet hits him and kills him, and he flops over on the Austrian side of the border. So the Austrian border guards pick him up and throw him back. <laughs> um, and then the Hungarian border guards pick him up and throw him back. And they keep throwing the body back and forth. He died in Austria. He's yours. Now he was coming from Hungary. Yours. Now, now, now he's yours. So they throw the corpse back and forth for a while. Finally, they bury him just inside the Hungarian side. And they put a wooden tombstone over him, a tomb wood, I guess you'd have to say, uh, inscribed in Yiddish, here lies a dog. Okay. And then that, that was replaced, of course, with a, a, a real monument to the people's hero after World War II, when the uh, Reds took over again. Yeah, yes, the Reds always. <laughs> but that's an issue. They, uh, played, uh, they played a game of toss across the border. 
with yeah. a dead body. Maybe with a dead comic. Well, what do you know? Uh, you know, the Zeta said Ishvatiz was indispensable to the Habsburgs. I think how much was just being nice? Well, it depended on when you were talking about. Um, he certainly was amenable at times. But as the war went on, uh, and as the need to federalize the country became more apparent, he really tightened the screws. Uh, Hungary had the uh, majority of uh, the grain supplies of the, of the monarchy. And so he was in a position to, and did, blackmail the uh, Austrian side. Um, you know, and then at the at the very end, he certainly made the coronation possible, but even that was to get uh, Carl to swear the oath, because he was definitely afraid that Kaiser, like uh, that Kaiser Karl, like his uncle, being uh, favorable to the Slovaks and Croats and Romanians and all that, would end the kind of Magyar hegemony that he and his party had stood for. I say the kind of hegemony they had stood for. Uh, part of the problem in 19th century and early 20th century Hungarian politics was that, as opposed to the Catholic Party, which were also Magyar, made up of the Zichis and Estahazis and Sejinis, people like that, uh, who wanted to make a, an equitable deal with the minorities. Tisa and the liberals were keen on Magyarization. Now, the problem was, of course, that the same wave of nationalism that engulfed the Magyars in the early 19th century had also engulfed all the other nationalities. Uh, and, you know, that sort of thing's great when it comes to recounting folklore and national epics and ancient heroes and all. That's all great. But the problem is when it gets in the way of living comfortably with the same people and the same entity in the here and now. It's a funny thing, and I speak as a French-Canadian-American, a member of a small ethnic group with a long and proud history and a chip on our shoulders that counts for absolutely nothing in the country I love. The United States are not like Canada, and being French-Canadian in the States doesn't really amount to much of anything, except that you're probably related to either or both Jack Kerouac and Madonna. Um, well, I, I'm sorry. DNA is DNA. Um, uh, Michael uh, P. is asking any recommendation on where to learn more about the uh, a, a state constitution that was misrepresented by academia. And first, I have, uh, I'll ask you after this, Charles, um, yo, if, if you get Father Johannes Menzer, Menzer's uh, book, on Dolphus, yeah. it is uh, Dolphus, an Austrian patriot, uh, that goes into details. Uh, that's a place you can check. Charles, any other? No, that, you, you stole the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, it, there, it just really isn't a lot of good English sources, right, yeah. on these types of things. There, there, there aren't too many. There were a few at the time, but I can't. I by telling you any right now. Um, and then the uh, John, not real name, uh, what was the absolute reaction to the Hungarian uprising of 1950? Well, they were all for it. And the same with the Czech uprising. I mean, <clears throat> the Archduke Otto was in favor of any movement toward freedom and away from communism on the part of his countrymen. Um, you know, but one of the sad things about the 56 uprising was that it was partly precipitated by Eisenhower's hinting and suggesting that he would support militarily an uprising. Uh, not only did he not do it, but when the day came, uh, Franco offered to send troops to Hungary if Eisenhower would transport them, because Spain didn't have the requisite uh, transports. And he refused. Uh, 1956 was not the greatest of years for American foreign policy. We also pulled off the Suez fiasco. Are there a lot of good years for American foreign policy? Uh, please don't ask me questions like that. 
<laughs> okay. Well, uh, if that, uh, if, if anybody... I, you know what that, you know what that was, you know what that was, you know what that was, you know what a hate fact is. <laughs> hate fact. What's a hate fact, Charles? A hate, a hate fact is something that's true but shouldn't be because it's bad. <laughs> but shouldn't be. So, if, well, no. For instance, like if you come up with a particular reality, uh, impossible to deny fact that. I don't like, I'll say it's, it's racist. It's a hate fact. How dare you know that? Well, similarly, what you proposed was a hate question. A hate question. <laughs> well, I, um, I, I pride myself on hate questions and hate well, facts. Uh, hate, hate questions and hate facts are hateful because they're bad. <laughs> and, and, a, and a, because they're fact. asked by people who are not, not the people should that should be asking questions yeah exactly and they trigger you know they're, they're, they're microaggressions basically well charles it's been a lovely time talking to you uh thank you all for watching charles do you have anything else to say before we go <coughs> about the interwar period or you know the number of topics uh, we've discussed well just that um you know the uh the um the sad sad thing is that history uh, history tells us the truth but historians don't always <laughs> and uh john not real name well as i say he made yeah he made some mistakes so this was the other one and um i'll leave you with this little line from uh andy is it andy stewart's or al stewart's song uh the post-world war ii blues in which he sings 1959 was a very strange time, a bad year for labor, but a good year for wine. Uncle Ike was our American pal, and no one said a word about the Suez Canal. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a way to go. Uh, thank you all for watching. Like, share, comment, and subscribe, and join the Discord. Link in the description to continue conversations like these off of YouTube. And, um, you know, you also get an opportunity to talk with me. Uh, um, over voice chat uh, every Monday at uh, 8, 8 p.m. Central uh, Time you know, uh, in the United States. So uh, thank you all and God bless. Bye.